All right. Thank you for joining us on the Trauma Perspective. And once again, I have to offer an additional trigger warning. We are talking about uh, information of a sensitive nature today that uh, may involve uh, more uh, talks about sex, sexual nature, and sexual violence. Um, With this talk, it is for a mature audience. Um, So if you find any of uh, that particular topic to be triggering, um, I would advise you do what's necessary to take care of yourself. And so with that today, we are going to talk about something that I actually saw online. Like I don't want to be one of those TikTok people, but I am a TikTok person. Um, And I asked Bryn to come in once again and talk to me um, uh, about this problem. Um, because I think that she can add an insight to it and maybe we can have an open discussion about practices of not hiring men for certain roles. Bryn, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Bryn Deary. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I'm a certified sex addiction therapist. I'm an autism special, uh, I'm sorry, autism spectrum disorder clinical specialist, I'm a certified clinical trauma professional and a master's level certified addictions professional. So this discussion is actually inspired by a TikTok thread where people were posting, mostly women, but people were posting and sharing examples of why some businesses and organizations uh, have practices where they just really don't choose men for certain roles. Um, This all started uh, with a TikTok that I saw about morticians and the history of embalming that, you know, women's bodies can be victimized, that they don't tend to, or hiring male morticians, there could usually, or sometimes there are problems. Um, And then also in Egypt, they would make sure the body was decomposed before they even... um, would start the process of of mummifying the body. So it's it's very rare. It's hard to find female bodies mummified. They find more males' body mummified because they didn't trust the families didn't trust that things would not happen to the female bodies. You, you know, and, it's so funny yeah. to say that because I I learned the same fact but with a different twist. Um, I learned it in that the reason female bodies would be presented more decayed is because husbands weren't yet ready to stop utilizing those bodies. For their really? needs. Yes. So this is uh, coming at two different um, uh, angles because I've also read that this practice took place in other cultures too, not just in Egypt. Did I you? also learned that when given um, the female bodies to the uh, embalmer, they would mutilate their faces to make them less attractive to the embalmer. So that led me down, of course, a rabbit hole. Yay. And I did dive into this rabbit hole. And this rabbit hole basically only had one bottom and that was toxic masculinity. And so that did leave me with the question, you know, are men the problem? I think that's where I started. And when I pose this question, I want to say that this particular conversation uh, is not a conversation about necessarily um, uh, sexism and hiring practices, uh, standard gender roles that maybe are in society to where women work certain professions and men work certain professions. This is also not to discredit any conversations of um, sex discrimination um, or uh, sexual harassment, those types of things um, in work environments or in professions. So I know that all those things exist. Uh, we acknowledge those things. 
but we're putting them to the side for a second to open up a conversation and maybe have a little bit more discussion about toxic masculinity just specifically when it comes to this topic. And so with that, uh, Bryn, it started, the rabbit hole also went in different directions in terms of what professions there have been reported issues and stories. And in the, the comment sections were wild with uh, what people coming on there talking about what practices and things that they don't like to necessarily hire men for. Things that I just didn't know about. I feel like I've lived in the world a little bit that maybe I would put two and two together. But uh, farmers were saying that they uh, also did not uh, particularly like to hire men when it came to the caring of baby calves. Calves in particular is on dairy farms. Dairy farms actually liked to hire women for those roles. Uh, They especially liked to hire, they would just give the jobs to teenage girls at local high schools because they knew, they know that the way in which the calf would be taken care of uh, will fall into whatever agricultural program that they have at their high school, but also they'll be treated like a baby. Um, whereas, uh, I guess the way that it works, uh, in calves that are nursing, they will tend to suckle anything. Mm. And so that is why typically farmers have had issues and they don't hire men for these roles. Uh, this particular farmer on this particular content, uh, uh, segment, uh, had to left a comment about, um, not hiring any males for his his, his calves on his dairy farm, dairy farms in particular, that was an issue. Another one was animal shelters having problems um, in a different way, maybe not in a sexual way, but yes, also in a sexual way with some of the animals, but also uh, men tending to try to out alpha some of the aggressive dogs or some of the dogs who had behavioral problems. There was this uh, overbearing dominance and, 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 uh, alpha alpha type mentality when working with abused animals another one people commented were in daycares even in church daycares on a volunteer basis uh they typically some day the most daycares typically it was stated just don't like hiring men just don't hire men and the ones that do they uh men have certain duties and they don't have other duties and one of the duties is that they never uh, a church group was saying that they don't ever leave Um, diapers are never changed by men men don't ever change diapers and men don't ever work with really really young kids they'll give them like older kids to work with and they're only in like the play or or type of um, outdoors activities and anything that's involved in the actual caregiving of the child is usually left up to a female employee that's a side note because I want to say that I do understand that some of this is like traditional gender role stuff, but we did mention that, you know, we're taking that into account, but putting that aside for now, another area that was mentioned that they don't like to hire men, um, is, uh, different roles and different problems that it has been in certain schools, uh, schools that are all female schools, not necessarily mixed population schools. They usually, um, shy away from hiring a male staff, or at least it's been reported in male staff um, in those uh, population schools. I mean, there was just so many. I worked for a clinical practice that wouldn't hire male therapists. And what was their reasoning? Exactly what we've been talking about. There's, uh, you know, if you're looking just statistically uh, at board violations, the amount of men who violate uh, sexual ethics with their clients versus the amount of women, it's, it's pretty staggering. Now, I, I want to, I think this is really important to say because, yes. um, you know, it's not as simple as 
men are the enemy. No. And and in many cases, we might say, yes, men are the problem. But I think the, the larger question is, why are men the problem? They're not, they're certainly not born being the problem. Um, and, you know, there's, there's two avenues of looking at this. Number one, I think we'd be remiss to say, um, there are female perpetrators and there are, um, you know, there are women doing things that um, aren't appropriate. And there also may be more women doing this stuff than we realize. So if we're not looking for women and women, of course, um, you know, just by, you know, the, the nature of biology, a lot of, um, you know, cis female bodies wouldn't leave the same traces as cis male bodies. So just by virtue of, um, you know, how orgasm is achieved, the kind, the nature of, uh, any kind of perpetration looks different from um, cis female sexuality to male sexuality. So this is not to say that men are the only ones doing this because they're probably not. And we know, you know, especially recently that we're starting to see a lot more people talking about the fact that they were victimized by women. And um, this takes us back to toxic masculinity, which I think it would behoove us to define um, at, at least for me, this is something that is near and dear to my heart because I work with a lot of men and, um, to, to be quite honest, I really just like them. I like men. And that's not something you hear from a lot of feminist, feminist people. Um, I, I have a soft spot because in a way I think that they have been dealt some bizarre hands. And toxic masculinity is not to say that men are toxic. I don't believe that men are inherently toxic. I don't believe that men are inherently the problem. And I do believe that toxic masculinity is hurting everybody, including men. So when I talk about toxic masculinity, I'm not saying that men are toxic. I am encouraging men and women to free themselves from the bonds of toxic masculinity that's hurting everybody. And toxic masculinity is the argument could be made um, that it's that it's hurting men as much as it's hurting women. And of course, different people would probably argue about that. But um, for male listeners and um, men loving listeners, please understand that this is not just a man hating anti-man situation. This is taking an honest look at how cultural standards for male behavior are hurting everybody, including men. I think it's very important, too, that we distinguish that idea of toxic masculinity and that this is not a male-hating conversation from this idea of not all men. Because I know we will hear that phrase and that and that particular uh, rebuttal to this type of conversation. And I want to distinguish between what Bryn just said and what that phrase is. Because that phrase is a phrase that people use to minimize the importance of this conversation and toxic masculinity. Of course, we know that that phrase is true, but we we're, we're not going to you know use that phrase as a way to to identify um, that not all men do this because um, we're not going to minimize the fact that toxic masculinity is the real problem, and anybody who has grown up with that or engaged in that or continues to support it. Um, that becomes the real problem in how we end up in these situations where um, 
we have these reports of men not being wanted or hired in certain professions for legitimate reasons. And it sounds like one of the the reasons that we can start with is that it's in positions of vulnerability. It's in populations of vulnerability um, that we end up seeing this toxic masculinity come out the way that it's coming out. And I, you know, conversely, I would even say, of course, not all men um, behave in toxic or abusive ways, but I would even argue that all men have in some way been victimized by toxic masculinity. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah. So, um, I think that, um, in understanding a toxic masculinity, I mean, we're saying that they've been harmed. How have men been harmed? How has this caused trauma in their lives and continues, uh, continues to cause trauma? When we think about the expectations of, you know, the sort of male-female binary assignments um, in, you know, and this is, of course, between how oppressed women have been, we, you know, we had a, we had a movement. We're looking at that. In many ways, men are just as uh, confined to gender roles. Now, those gender roles maybe aren't as oppressive as some of the gender roles women have experienced, but they're still being confined and held to standards according to their, you know, their biological sex or their genders um, just as much as women are. So that may not result in the same level of you know, physical victimization, but it results in the same level of um, shame and anxiety around how people are supposed to be presenting or looking. So men are, you know, at least in in many cultures, um, men are raised to, they're not allowed to cry. They're not allowed to talk about feelings. They're not encouraged to um, identify their feelings. Um, They're allowed to have three feelings, hungry, angry, and horny. And if you can't sort of wedge one of those emotions into hungry, angry, and horny, then you're not a real man. You know, if you're in pain, you're supposed to rub some dirt on it and walk it off. Basically, in this culture, um, men are ostensibly bred to be um, disposable, always erect, always strong, never in pain, never tired, income-earning machines. And if you have a need or if you are tired or if you are feeling weak one day or if you have an emotion, then you are less than and you're not a real man. Uh, God forbid you want to have sex with somebody that isn't a cis woman. You're not a real man. God forbid you want to drive something that isn't a lifted truck. You're not a real man. Um, So you've got men that learn very early on that if you don't behave in a certain way, you're worthless. And that is damaging for any child. And, you know, let's not forget that all men started as boys. Um, They started, well, I guess I shouldn't say that with regards to the trans population, but um, penis bearers all began as treated like little boys in this culture. And um, they were children and they were brainwashed as children, just like little girls are brainwashed as children. So, you know, while women are taught to be pretty baby making nurturing machines, men are taught to be, you know, strong, silent uh, money giving erection giving machines. And, um, it's incredibly painful for them. Now the one of the differences that I think is really important to highlight is that because female oppression and victimization, um, has been so abhorrent historically, there are some systems in place for women that are not in place for men. So yes, the American justice system has treated, uh, sexual assault survivors, 
pretty horribly. And we know about the storehouses of rape kits that haven't been looked at. And we know um, that women have been shamed and asked what they're wearing and uh, subjected to horrifying uh, questions from lawyers in court. Um, but what's generally not generally not happening with women is they're not being laughed out of police stations when they come to report and men are and women are not being told that they are now they might be told they're less valuable if they're not a virgin anymore or if they're perceived as having been slutty for being assaulted but they're not perceived as less female they don't lose their w card for having been assaulted whereas if a man is assaulted by a woman, he's thought of as less of a man for not liking it. And if he's assaulted by a man, he's thought of as less of a man because he's been assaulted by another man. So there's a different component of shame to male victims, um, not only of sexual violence, but also of cultural standards of being. And I think it is really important to mention in this conversation that men are killing themselves twice as fast as women. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, women are allowed to find community. We are allowed to seek out therapy. We're allowed to cry and talk about our experiences. There's so much isolation for men where they are, they're not encouraged. You know what I mean? They, they play golf and they drink, um, you know, I think it's really interesting to uh, look at the population of first responders and combat vets, where in many ways um, there is interesting survival rates for combat vets who go on to either stay within the community or, ironically, a lot of motorcycle clubs people are finding healing because there's now a brotherhood yes. where it's okay to, you know, hug each other and say, I love you, brother, and that kind of thing. So any, t any time that men have community with other men where they are allowed to express emotions and support for one another, they're going to have... Um, a stronger ability to find healing. So, so the one thing about that though, is that I will say that, um, I've, I've read some research about this and this has, this actually came up for me personally in some of the work that I did over the pandemic with men, black men in particular, um, in this particular research in, in this group in coming together as a community to talk about men's mental health issues. One major factor that was a problem um, that hindered a lot of good mental health work is that men will separate themselves into groups and there was almost an unwillingness to actually come together, like together fully as a group to work on healing, meaning that there are people with different sexual orientations in the group. There are people who uh, maybe identify differently and even just in the way that they look, there was always a separation amongst men's groups where when women's groups were formed, um, if there was a woman identifying in a different sexuality or a woman identifying um, as a different race or a woman identifying differently, as long as she or they categorized themselves for the group, they were then accepted by the group and mental health took place within the group. Not saying that there weren't challenges, but in these- Yeah, that's not quote, shocking unquote, at all. Yeah, men's groups, there was an unwillingness 
because of the level of toxic masculinity to even come together in this community way to work on mental health. Even if members of your community were there and willing to partner with you, sure, there was a separation. And of course, while I validated that there are also female perpetrators and we hear less about them because men are more ashamed of talking about it, um, what we can't deny is that if we're talking about physical violence, we are mostly talking about men. Um, and that makes perfect sense why you would have people who don't feel safe coming together and being vulnerable because um, a gay or trans man is not going to feel comfortable around cishet men in a way that they might be around women because it's usually not women committing hate crimes. Yes. So, I mean, the, that was uh, definitely something that stood out to me um, that just became more prominent. And I know during that particular time in, in society, um, things were at a heightened point, you know. So we were doing some very strong conversations about um, inclusion and race and, and equity. Um, but still, that separation created some dynamics that were really hard to overcome when we think about just overall working on people's um, mental health. Um have you ever experienced that in any of the groups that, you know, when you were doing inpatient work, were there any separations in your groups? Um, Absolutely. And I, I actually had a pretty unorthodox and not always appreciated by my superiors way of handling that. Um, I like to think I am told that I produce an environment that facilitates the safety of everyone. So I actually wrote a blurb and had a sign on my door that said, this is a safe space for uh, queer, trans, non-binary, liberal, um, blue-haired, pierced people. This is a safe space for Christian, Republican, cishet, white men. And the people who are triggered by either of those, um, I invite into a conversation. And nine times out of ten, they need a hug, as stupid as that sounds. And again, I'm talking about a group population, not men in general. Um, but a lot of, by the time you're presenting in a in a trauma facility as a man, you have been minimized. Yeah. You haven't been given um, sympathy for what your stuff. So a lot of the angry types that come in there... Um, they're not only angry about their traumas, they're angry about how their traumas have been received by others. So a little bit of stern guidance in a language that they understand um, goes a long way. And, you know, knock on wood, I, I haven't, I have yet to have such a, a violent, horrifying, you know, I've never had a group gone so horribly wrong that it wasn't safe and we had to stop the group early. Um, but I'm one of the only clinicians I know that has been able to foster useful conversations between, you know, incredibly liberal and incredibly conservative um, queer and cis het white people. How do we approach toxic masculinity as therapists um, in our offices with our clients if we know that 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 element is really holding them back? You know, we've identified it. They don't see it. How are we approaching this with them so that we can move them forward in their healing? So um, I love narrative therapy just because I'm a word nerd. Um, and one of the concepts in narrative and a lot of postmodern uh, modalities is this idea of externalizing the problem and making it, and this is why I also started this segment the way that I did, making it really, really clear that the man is not 
the problem that toxic masculinity is. The standards that he has been held to are. The expectations of this culture are. And it's about helping him free himself from those unrealistic and unhealthy expectations. So starting off by saying you are not the problem, but you might be engaging in problematic behaviors that are hurting yourself and others. Let's free you from those so that you can have a better life, not so that you can be a better person to others. I also like the idea, um, especially when I'm working with um, different groups of men, because different groups of men are all affected by toxic masculinity, but the way in which they've experienced it is going to be a different, right? But so I like the idea of then what I like to call kind of making accountability sexy, like making it so um, delicious and appealing to be very um, authentic and accountable for your actions, for your past, for um, taking ownership to um, rewrite a, a, a healthier identity or whatever that means to you. And just really understanding that sometimes we have to sort of lay all our pieces and parts out on the table to be able to, you know, pick apart and throw out the trash and keep the gym, so to speak. But we can't do that unless we're really ready to be accountable. But accountable has to look appealing because toxic masculinity does not allow room for necessarily uh, accountability to be so appealing because it presents almost a vulnerability when I become accountable for the things. Isn't that ironic? (laughs) This idea of like, you know, quote unquote, manning up and owning what you did is something that's really far fetched for manning up in in the traditional term of it. Um, Standing up and saying what you believe in or saying what has been done to you or expressing how you actually feel is terrifying because it leaves you open for uh, criticism, for contempt, for judgment. And up until very recently, um, men haven't had to do that. And this is why I think there's so much scrambling now in the culture and so much, you know, uh, pushback from you know, sometimes, you know, some people are like culturally doubling down on the toxic masculinity, like, you know, the Andrew Tates and the people who are, it's like, I'm going to be even more toxic. But that's also when they don't want to say what they've done to other people, which is the other part of that. And I don't think you see that without there being a lot of pain under Mm -hmm. the surface. Yeah. And, you know, when you talk about the incel movement, um, these people are in agony and that doesn't make anything okay. It's not an excuse. It's not a justification. But I think as scientists, you know, as observers, we have to look at the root of it. And these are these are really these are people who do not or have not at some point felt like they met some sort of standard and it makes them angry. And I think it would make anybody angry, you know, to be told that you're not blank enough Um So again, it doesn't make it okay, but we can't stop the problem until we can prevent it. And, you know, being able to understand what goes into it helps us figure out how to prevent it. Who stops the problem? Well, I'm of the belief that preventing a fire is easier than putting one out, which is why I will work with some difficult populations um, the way that I look at it, uh, you know, you've got people who perpetrate for different reasons 
and um, a lot of people who are abusive, um, a lot of people, not all people, but many people who are abusive, they just don't know any different because they were the targets of abuse themselves. So if they are aware and they have shame about it or they don't want to be that person and they want help, you know, how easy is it for us as a culture to just stigmatize, oh, these are just all bad people and, oh, they should be killed and da 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 and, um, you know, I'm not a shoot your wounded type, like to say that anybody needs to die because they're mentally ill just feels like, OK, so now we're punishing people for being sick, which is not to say that, you know, it's safe for them to be walking around in the general population. You know, that's a completely separate issue. But if somebody genuinely wants help, they're not being court mandated. Maybe they haven't even committed a crime yet, but they're afraid of hurting someone. The last thing I want to do is shame them away from getting help, is shame them away from talking about it. And I, you know, as easy as it would be to be punishing or penalizing, um, being able to have difficult conversations with people, I think, helps people find the kind of peace that prevents them from possibly acting on an impulse that isn't healthy for them or other people. So I think we have to be talking about this stuff. And the more we, you know, a perfect example is how we talk about like child molesters in prison. You know, it's the one thing everybody can agree on. Oh yeah, yeah. Those evil guys. And it's like, you know, on one hand, sure, nobody, nobody likes child abuse. It's not to say that we're condoning child abuse, but the guy in there that's raped and murdered 40 women is looking down on the guy that photographed a kid. And, and we're all siding with the adult rapists who raped adult women, and we're all agreeing that the guy that touched the child. And it's like, okay, like, is this, is this really useful? Is this a useful conversation? Um, People do things for different reasons. People do different things. And understanding why things are being done and trying to prevent the cycle from taking place again, I think is the only way to deal with it. But in that conversation, men save other men. Men save themselves. It's not, no other population can walk in and save men from toxic masculinity. It stems from men holding other men accountable. It stems from men doing their own self-work to deconstruct those particular aspects and experiences and teachings and things that they've they've had. There, there is no other way to move forward. You know, um, I think I mentioned that because in a lot of times we see people come to therapy. You know, a guy will sit down in front of us and they'll be like, "Oh, I'm here because my wife." told me to come or I'm here because, um, you know, uh, she called and made an appointment for me. And I just, I kind of just want in this particular area, I think it's so important that toxic masculinity has to be deconstructed, but it has to come from men. What do you mean? It has to come from men. What do you men mean? Men need to save themselves. I mean, I would argue that everybody needs to save themselves. I would argue that too. But okay. when I see a lot of the conversation right now some surrounding, um, like you hear the problem of the lonely man or the problem oh, well, the, of... I mean, in, in the way that I was talking about therapy, a, a man would have to present, even if it was his wife's yes, idea. That's what I mean. He's walking into the office. He's willing to discuss the stuff that's going on. Is he? If he's walking in, yeah. If he's being, even if he's forced by his wife's hand in, nobody can force him to be vulnerable. Nobody can force him to work on himself. And this, this might be 
That's if he's doing the work. Exactly. Okay. That's so what I that's mean. just not if I'm just showing up because someone told Which me to be Which is why here. I specified not court mandated. Mm-hmm. So someone's wife might say, I'm going to leave you if you don't go to therapy. They're still choosing to go. And once they're in there, if they sit with their arms folded, staring out the window, no, that's not them participating in therapy. But if they're choosing to participate, regardless, you know, and this is sort of, this might be taboo or unorthodox of me, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's sort of the same thing with, uh, you know, trauma and drug rehab, where everyone says, oh, you have to do it for yourself. I don't necessarily agree. I see people coming to treatment for, quote unquote, the wrong reasons. I don't think there's a wrong reason to present to treatment as long as you are open to the treatment once you're there. So people always say, you know, you shouldn't, you know, well, you know, you should want to live for yourself. You shouldn't want to live for your family. A lot of people don't want to live for themselves and they do want to live for their family. And that's why they go to treatment and they might learn to love themselves in treatment, but that's not why they're presenting there in the first place. I don't think there's a wrong reason to present to treatment for whatever reason you're there because you think it's going to help you, even if it's just going to help keep you out of jail. Um, Obviously, you know, like I said, someone sitting with their arms folded may not be open to learning anything. And that's, that's useless. There's nothing we can do with that. Um, but I have seen people who were ultimatumed into treatment and wound up leaning into treatment and actually benefiting from it. I think the distinction that I'm trying to make is not necessarily how someone presents, but the fact that they still have to do the work. Oh yeah. Like there isn't a way to come in and make someone deconstruct the toxic masculinity they were taught in their childhood. Like that's still a a work that is their responsibility. Of course. And and of course, because, you know, for, you know, many reasons, the least of which is not everyone's experiences are unique. And someone that was raised by, you know, a distant um, army officer might have a different understanding or a different experience of masculinity than someone who was raised by a football coach or a construction worker or, um, you know, someone in the automotive industry. Like the messages that they're getting about masculinity are going to be different from person to person. Their traumas are going to be different. So they do have to be active participants in their own healing in that sense, because there's no rote treatment for all men for all toxic masculinity. So I know one of the things that's kind of unique is that once again, we tend to approach these in sort of a retreat kind of environment. And so our experiences are very uh, sort of very focused. Um, They're very specific, very person centered when we're in these environments working with someone on different topics. And so the, the, of course, in situations where you're working with people with trauma, um, the toxicity in their identity development is going to come up and masculinity could be a part of that identity development, depending on who they are and how they identify. How do you like to, you know, work with that in those very intense sort of person centered uh, type of deep exploration ways? In. Can you be more specific? So, for example, you know, like um, we've planned certain groups uh, in the retreat and we've decided um, in in terms of like how we separate people out um, with uh, the, their different needs, that they determine what their needs are. If we have a particular population that's been affected by um, uh, the negative uh, teachings of masculinity, okay, and we have a male and female um, 
you know, uh, population or, or, or individuals who've been affected by this topic, how are we going to approach that with them that keeps it safe, sure. keeps it, uh, keeps them protected sure. and also just helps them deconstruct these things for themselves? Um, I, like I said, this particular topic has been near and dear to my heart for so long. I was a women's studies minor in college and it was through looking at feminism that I started looking at um, toxic masculinity and how it's hurting men. So I, I personally would love um, a retreat of all men that identify as having been damaged by uh, traditional uh, masculine ideals. Um, and I imagine if a man is identifying, and again, this is not court ordered, this is not anything like that, but if a man is identifying as having been wounded by expectations of masculinity, and um, wanting help. And wanting help. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I would argue that most of the people presenting to want to go to that retreat would be safe. And if we were doing an all male retreat, we would have the luxury of, um, maybe being a little more flexible with certain kinds of lacks of safety. So obviously physical safety is always important for everybody present on a retreat, but, um, men that are prone to, um, losing their temper, but not in a physically violent way. So that might be, um, a group for first responders or cis hetero men who, um, maybe, you know, will identify as, you know, maybe more manly and, and a lot of things, you know, these manly type macho men, men often feel much more comfortable being vulnerable around other manly sort of how we think of as macho men. And, you know, when the truck driver is sitting next to the construction worker and everybody's, you know, crying and saying, I love you, man. Like there's a, there's a, there's this very sweet bonding that happens there where everyone is in this sort of mutual agreement that nobody loses their man card. So I would love to see a retreat just for men who identify as you know, men that have also recognized that they've been damaged by toxic masculinity. I would also love a separate retreat um, for trans men and gay men because um, there's some consternation between those two populations as well. And um, while there's friction between trans men and gay men and problems between those two populations, the problems tend not to be physically violent. So there might be disagreement. There might be feelings of um, emotional lack of safety. There might be, you know, misgendered and that kind of lack of safety. But trans men and gay men are less likely to become physically violent with each other. So that would be a different kind of conversation facilitated in a different way. Um, And then when it comes to male and females together, um, anybody that identifies as having been damaged by toxic masculinity um, could present. And obviously, you know, the screenings would be slightly different for each group. And maybe there'd be no interest in one of the groups I just mentioned. And this is where we want the listeners to talk about what they would be interested in. Um, But I think giving giving it a lot of weight and and giving this subject the weight that it deserves and looking at all the populations that it affects. Um, I have seen healing happen in all male groups that I don't think would happen with women present. And then I've seen healing happen in groups with all genders that I don't think would happen if it was just men or just women. So I do see value in groups where all genders are participating. I also see value in um, specific groups for specific populations. I think that's what's so unique about healing is that um, we need all of it. Yeah. Like it has, all of it has to exist. 
There has to be a category. There has to be an opening. There has to be a space for all types of people to feel safe. And we're not going to always understand those spaces for everyone, but um, work can be done in those spaces. Um, And I think those being able to plan um, retreat environments that can be so specific and so particular to the needs of the people that are there become very important in us as uh, therapists being able to just effectively help people with their challenges and their issues and then move them forward because the goal is to move them forward towards whatever they believe their healing is and for them to live their most uh, happy, well, mentally healthy life. Yeah. And I would say that this all sort of connects to the original topic because like I said, when men are cultured to feel hungry, angry, or horny, you know, the rest of the emotions sort of get filtered into one of those categories, which is why you see, um, a lot of sexual violence because men don't know how else to express this rage, these feelings that they have, um, which sort of ties back to why you see more sexual violence coming from men um, and why you're seeing um, the deceased and animals and children victimized, um, mostly by men. Uh, they haven't been taught other ways. And that's not to say, oh, they, they can't help it. Of course they can help it. But when they are struggling within themselves to understand their feelings and they've only been taught one way to soothe themselves that is appropriate for men. And that's where you can eating, you can eat, you can beat it up, you can have sex with it. And that's how you're supposed to self-soothe if you're a real man. So naturally you're going to see violence. You're going to see compulsive behaviors surrounding food and gambling and sex. What would you like to leave with people? What should we know about this conversation and how should we move forward? I would say that it's not the man that's the problem. And to be very clear that this is not about men are bad. This is about a lot of men are behaving in ways that aren't appropriate because of how how they were raised to be in this culture. And that toxic masculinity is a, is is killing people. It's killing men. It's killing women. I think it's something like every 26 seconds, a woman dies at the hands of a a lover or an ex or something. Um, and again, women are dying because of toxic masculinity and men are killing themselves because of toxic masculinity. So I look at this as an endemic. I look at this as something that's hurting everybody. This isn't just about men being bad. And I think conceptualizing of it as gender roles in general, are oppressive and giving men permission to look at what has been deemed as healthy masculinity and giving them permission to look at alternatives and to reject what it traditionally means to be a man. And, you know, basically it's okay to reject machismo and you still get to hold on to your man card, even if you found an an actual way of being able to deal with your own emotions in a healthy way where people aren't being people or animals aren't being perpetrated against. I hope that in this conversation and other conversations, men at least start to be accountable for their own mental health and want to be mentally well and healthy and take actions toward that and not be afraid to seek therapy and seek support from other healthy outlets if need be. With that, um, please leave us a review. Leave us any feedback. Um, We'd love to read it and hear it. Leave us any information 
um, that you think would be useful in us making this podcast better. Thank you for joining us on The Trauma Perspective.